Chapter Sixteen of the Daughter of a Magnate by Frank Spearman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen Night. Glover looked at his watch. It was Giddings' trick at Medicine Bend, and he made little doubt of getting what he asked for. He walked to the eating house, and from there directly across to the roundhouse, and started a hurry call for the night foreman. He found him at a desk talking with Paddy McGraw, the engineer that was to have taken out number six. Paddy, said Glover, do you want to take me to medicine tonight? They've just canceled number six. I know it. You don't have to go tonight, do you? Yes, with Mr. Brock's car. This isn't as bad as the night you and I and Jack Moore bucked snow at Point of Rocks, said Glover significantly. Do you remember carrying me from the number seven culvert clean back to the station after the steam pipe broke? You bet I do, and I never thought you'd see again after the way your eyes were cooked that night. Well, of course, if you want to go tonight, it's go, Mr. Glover. You know what you're about. But I'd never look to see you going out for fun a night like this. I can't help it. Yet I wouldn't want any man to go out with me tonight unwillingly, Patty. Why, that's nothing. You got me my first run on this division. I'd pull you to hell if you said so. Glover turned to the night foreman. What's the best engine in the house? There's a ten eighteen with steam and a plow, Glover started. The ten eighteen? She was to pull six. The mountain man picked up the telephone and getting the operators sent a rush message to Giddings. Leaving final instructions with the two men, he returned to the telegraph office. When Giddings' protest about ordering a train out on such a night came, Glover, who expected it, choked it back, assuming all responsibility, gave no explanations, and waited. When the orders came, he inspected them himself and returned to the car. Gertrude, in the car alone, was drinking coffee from a hotel tray on the card table. It was very kind of you to send this in, she said, rising cordially. I had forgotten all about dinner. Have you succeeded? Yes. Could you eat what they sent? Pray look. I've left absolutely nothing, and I'm very grateful. Do I not seem so, she added searchingly. I want to because I am. He smiled at her earnestness. Two little chairs were drawn up at the table, and facing each other they sat down while Gertrude finished her coffee and made Glover take a sandwich. When the train conductor came in ten minutes later, Glover talked with him. While the men spoke, Gertrude noticed how Glover overran the dainty chair she had provided. She scrutinized his rough weather garb, the heavy hunting boots, the stout reefer buttoned high, and the leather cap crushed now with his gloves in his hand. She had been asking him where he got the cap, and a moment before, while her attention wandered, he had told her the story of a company of Russian noblemen and engineers from Vladivostok who, during the summer, had been his guests, nominally, on a bear hunt, though they knew better than to hunt bears in summer. It was really to pick up points on American railroad construction. 
he might go he thought the following spring to siberia himself perhaps to stay this man that feared the wind he had had a good offer the cap was a present the two men went out and she was left alone a flagman hat in hand passed through the car the shock of the engine coupler striking the buffer hardly disturbed her reverie for her the night meant too much glover was with the operators giving final instructions to giddings for ploughs to meet them without fail at point of rocks hastening from the office he looked again at the barometer it promised badly and the thermometer stood at ten degrees above zero he had made his way through the falling snow to where they were coupling the engine to the car watched narrowly and going forward spoke to the engineer when he re-entered the car it was moving slowly out of the yard gertrude with a smile put aside her book i'm so glad she said looking at her watch i hope we shall get there by eleven o'clock we should should we not mr glover it's a poor night for making a schedule was all he said the arcs of the long yard threw white and swiftly passing beams of light through the windows and the warmth within belied the menace outside at the rear end of the car the flagman worked with one of the tail lights that burned badly and the conductor watched him gertrude laid aside her furs and threw open her jacket her hat she kept on and sitting in a deep chair told glover of her father's arrival from the east on wednesday and explained how she had set her heart on surprising him that evening at medicine bend where are we now she asked as the rumbling of the whirling trucks deepened entering sleepy cat canyon the rat river oh i remember this i ride on the platform almost every time i come through here so i may see where you split the mountain and every time i see it i ask myself the same question how came he ever to think of that it needed even hardly so much as an effort to lull her companion's uneasiness he was a man with no concern at best for danger except as to the business view of it and when personally concerned in the hazard his scruples were never deep not before had he seen or known gertrude brock for from that moment she gave herself to bewilderment and charm the great engine pulling them made so little of its load that they could afford to forget the night indeed gertrude gave him no moments to reflect from the quick play of their talk at the table she led him to the piano when sitting down she drew off her gloves she drew them off lazily when he reminded her that she still had on her jacket she did not look up but leaning forward she studied the page of the song on the rack running the air with her right hand while she slowly extended her left arm toward him and let him draw the tight sleeve over her wrist and from her shoulder then his attempt to relieve her of the second sleeve she wholly ignored slipping it lightly off and pursuing the song with her left hand while she let the jacket fall in a heap on the floor by the time glover had picked it up and she had frowned at him she might safely have asked him had the fancy struck her to head the engine for the peak of sleepy cat mountain 
Halfway through a teasing Polish dance, she stopped and asked suddenly whether he had had any supper beside the sandwich, and, refusing to receive assurances forthwith, abandoned the piano, rummaged the staterooms, and came back bearing in one hand a very large box of candy, and in the other a banjo. She wanted to hear the darky tunes he had strummed at the desert campfire and making him eat of the chocolates, picked, meantime, at the banjo herself. He was so hungry that unconsciously he dispatched one entire layer of the box while she talked. She laughed heartily at his appetite, and at his solicitation began tasting the sweetmeats herself. She led him to ask where the box had come from, and refused to answer more than to wonder as she discarded the tongs and proffered him a bonbon from her fingers, whether possibly she was not having more pleasure in disposing of the contents than the donor of the box had intended. Changing the subject capriciously, she recalled the night in the car that he had assisted in Louise Bonner's charade and his abruptly effective perouetting in a corner behind the curtain where Louise and he thought no one saw them. "'And by the way,' she added, "'you never told me whether your stenographer finally came that day you tried to put me at work.' Glover hung his head. "'Did she?' "'Yes. What is she like?' He laughed and was about to reply when the train conductor coming forward touched him on the shoulder and spoke. Gertrude could not hear what he said, but Glover turned his head and straightened in his chair. I can't smell anything, he said presently. With the conductor he walked to the hind end of the car, opened the door, and the three men went out on the platform. What is it? asked Gertrude when Glover came back. One of the journals in the rear truck is heating. It is curious, he mused. As many times as I've ridden in this car, I've never known a box to run hot till tonight. Just when we don't want it to. He drew down the slack of the bell cord, pulled it twice firmly, and listened. Two freezing pipes from the engine answered. They sounded cold. A stop was made, and Glover, followed by the train men, went outside. Gertrude, walking back, saw them in the driving snow beneath the window. Their lamps burned bluishly dim. From the journal box rose a whipping column of black smoke expanding, when water was got on the hot steam, into a blinding explosion of white vapor that the storm snatched away in rolling clouds. There was running to and from the engine, and the delay was considerable. But they succeeded at last in rigging a small tank above the wheel so that a stream of water should run into the box. The men re-entered with their faces stung by the cold. The engine hoarsely signaled, and the car started. Glover made little of the incident, but Gertrude observed some preoccupation in his manner. He consulted frequently his watch. Once, when he was putting it back, she asked to see it. His watch was the only thing of real value he had, and he was pleased to show it. It contained a portrait of his mother, 
and Gertrude, to her surprise and delight, found it. She made him answer question after question, asked him to let her take the watch from the chain, and studied the girlish face of this man's mother until she noticed its outlines growing dim and looked impatiently up at the deck burner. The gas was freezing in the storage tanks. Glover walked to the rear. The journal, they told him, was running hot again. The engineer had asked not to be stopped till they reached Soda Buttes, where he should have to take water. When he finally slowed for the station, the box was ablaze. The men hastening out found their drip tank full of ice. There was nothing for it but fresh brasses, and Glover getting down in the snow set the jack with his own hands so that it should be set right. The conductor passed him a bar, but Gertrude could not see. She could only hear the ring of the frosty steel. Then, with a scream, the safety valve of the engine popped, and the wind tossed the deafening roar in and out of the car, now half dark. Stunned by the uproar and disturbed by the failing light, she left her chair and, going over, sat down at the window beneath which Glover was working. Some instinct made her seek him. When the car door opened, the flagman entered with both hands filled with snow. "'Are you ready to start?' asked Gertrude. He shook his head and, bending over a leather chair, rubbed the snow vigorously between his fingers. "'Oh, are you hurt?' "'I froze my fingers, and Mr. Glover ordered me in,' said the boy. Gertrude noticed for the first time the wind and listened. Standing still, the car caught the full sweep, and it rang in her ears softly, a far, lonely sound. While she listened, the lights of the car died wholly out, but the jargon of noises from the truck kept away some of the loneliness. She knew he would soon come, and when the sound ceased, she waited for him at the door and opened it hastily for him. He looked storm-beaten as he held his lantern up with a laugh. Then he examined the flagman's hand, followed Gertrude forward, and placed the lantern on the table between them, his face glowing above the hooded light. They were running again very fast, and the rapid whipping of the trucks was resonant with snow. How far now to medicine? she smiled. We're about halfway. From here to Point of Rocks we follow an Indian trail. The car was no longer warm. The darkness, too, made Gertrude restless, and they searched the storage closets vainly for candles. When they sat down again they could hear the panting of the engine. The exhaust had the thinness of extreme cold. They were winding on heavy grades among the buttes of the Castle Creek country and when the engineer whistled for Castle Station, the big chime of the engine had shrunk to a baby's treble. It was growing very cold. As the car slowed, Glover caught an odor of heated oil, and going back found the coddled journal smoking again, and like an honest man cursed it heartily. Then he went forward to find out what the stop was for. He came back after some moments. Gertrude was waiting at the door for him. What did you learn? 
He held his lantern up to light her face and answered her question with another. Do you think you could stand a ride in the engine cab? Surely, if necessary. Why? The engine isn't steaming overly well. When we leave this point, we get the full wind across the sweetgrass plains. There's no fit place at this station for you, no place in fact, or I should strongly advise staying here. But if you stayed in the car, there's no certainty we could heat it another hour. If we sidetrack the car here with the conductor and flagman, they can stay with the operator, and you and I can take the cab into Medicine Bend. Whatever you think best. I hate to suggest it. It is my fault. Shall we go now? As soon as we sidetrack the car. Meantime, he spoke earnestly. Remember, it may mean life. Bundle yourself up and everything warm you can find. But you? I'm used to it. End of chapter 16